Hello and welcome to the Magpie Talk Show, a podcast about technology. I'm your host, Sam Newman. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Magpie Talk Show. Uh, it's been a long time since our last episode, uh, but it's often the case with these things, uh, life gets in the way of our plans. Uh, in between the last episode I sent out and this one, uh, I actually left Australia where I've been living for many years, moved back to London and set up my own company. So I'm now an, a, a newly minted uh, independent consultant and trainer. As a result, this sort of uh, throws, throws many things into disarray. So apologies for not getting uh, more episodes out. I still plan to publish uh, the uh, odd episode from time to time. Um, uh, we'll just see how well I, I get on top of my uh, work schedule uh, to make that possible. But you will still be hearing a few more episodes this year for certain. In um, this week's episode, we've got a really interesting guest in the form of Jay Kreps. Uh, Jay uh, was previously at LinkedIn. He's now the CEO of Confluent, which is the company behind Kafka. And, and Jay was one of the main creators of Kafka. This has become a very interesting uh, message broker, uh, amongst other things. Uh, it comes up a lot in conversations that I have with clients about microservices and the likes. And something I'm really interested in, it opens up some interesting possibilities for how computers can interact in different ways, about how we can share data in different ways. I was actually been doing some, some work with Confluent recently here in London, uh, and through that I got to meet Jay and thought he'd be a great guest for the uh, uh, podcast, so here he is. Uh, so we're going to learn a lot more about what Kafka is, where you might want to use it. We're also going to talk about Jay's background, how he got into technology. I always think those those stories are really, really interesting. Lots of people are always interested in how, how do you get to do what you do and I always hope that these stories that we share on the on the podcast here can help you in those areas. There's a couple of firsts in this episode actually. Uh, the first is that we recorded this remotely so um, Jay and Paolo Alto me here in London. The audio quality I think stands up pretty well partly thanks to Zencaster which we were using to record the tracks in both locations but there were a few glitches so I had to do a bit more editing than I normally did. I still think it hands, uh, stands up pretty well though. Um, the second thing is that uh, Confluent actually recorded a video of us having our conversation. They're going to be sharing that over on their website as well. And once that's live, I will add a link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to see our faces as well as just hear us talk. Uh, anyway, uh, on with the show. I'm here. Uh, uh, well, virtually, this is a first for the Magpie uh, talk show in that we're doing a podcast purely virtually normally i do these two these things in person so we have a rather complex audio setup but i'm here with jay kreps who is the founder uh of confluent and the key people behind uh kafka um so we're also going to be doing a video of this as well so i'm going to be sharing the video with everybody uh but jay uh, first of all thank you very much for coming along thanks for having me so, Jake, now, where in the world are you right now? Because I'm in London, so just to, I, want, I want our listeners at home to get a real sense just of how global this podcast has gone. Beautiful Palo Alto, California. <laughs> and it's uh, warm and sunny. Here. So, I mean, you must be in some giant confluence of Silicon Valley tech startups and where you are. Yeah, that's right. This whole corridor is just, you know, wall-to-wall uh, startup land. Um, so it goes from lots of little companies up in San Francisco to the big kind of, you know, Intel, whatever, down in Santa Clara, San Jose. And, and so like, oh, I, I'm really interested in how you 
went on this whole journey. And it's a question I ask, it's a f pretty much one of the earliest questions I ask everybody on this podcast, which is, uh, what is it that got you into computing in the first place? Oh, that's a good question. So I, I came into computers um, probably a bit late in life and for odd reasons. So I, um, you know, I, I actually started programming computers in college and I actually didn't have a computer until college. So, uh, you know, everybody else started when they were like eight years old. I started much later. Um, I was in college. I was trying to figure out my major um, and I was really interested in two things. I was interested in the emergence of open source. So Linux was just starting to be a thing. Maybe it wasn't um, quite the production operating system that it is now, but it was starting to be a thing. I just thought the whole model of that was fascinating. Um, and I was also really interested in artificial intelligence. So I, um, you know, it was just around the time when digital music was starting to become uh, possible. And, you know, so for at least for me, I thought it was fascinating if you could digitize music, which I thought of as being, you know, not something you would computerize. And I thought, well, you could digitize anything. And what does that mean? What are the limits of that? And so I was super fascinated by that. Um, and I was looking for a major that used a little bit uh, more math um, than biology and other things I'd explored. And so I, I ended up taking a bunch of computer classes and ended up uh, going with that. And then, you know, ended up uh, pursuing that. I, you know, I was in a PhD program here at um, uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I was studying machine learning. And um, I ended up leaving that early and, and going out into industry. Uh, thinking to apply this stuff, uh, which turned out at that time to be much harder than I thought because there was there was no jobs related to machine learning. So I was I was maybe a decade too soon on that one. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, totally because because I, I don't I think you know because the same time you were going to uni, I was as well, and other things that were being talked about at that point. People were talking about neural nets and everything else, and it was going to change the world any moment now. But it didn't. It kind of didn't happen. And even the stuff we're seeing now isn't really the stuff we talked about, right? I mean, now we'd like, it's, 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 it's low level stuff in a way. It's still really empowering, but it's only been the last couple of years where these things have been having practical applications. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's super fascinating. I mean, l literally for the majority of the last 10 years, not a, and, and even before then, not a ton of progress was made in machine learning on, you know, practical benchmarks of accuracy. Um, and so there was definitely, you know, advances in the techniques. There was more integration with the world of statistics. Um, and so, you know, when I was actually getting into that field, neural networks were basically on the way out. And it was all, you know, support vector machines, kernels, you know. Um, and uh, it's funny that now that stuff's all back in. So m maybe there's a cyclical aspect. Uh, AI was also totally out. Nobody would talk about AI. That was a dead subject. Uh, it rebranded as machine learning. Now it's, you know, rebranding back as AI. So um, I guess everything old is new again. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure if I stay still long enough, we'll be talking about macro services. Um, it'll all be back to the monolith and we'll be talking about, yeah, you know, we'll be talking about the mainframe coming back any moment now. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's, it is kind of interesting though how accessible a lot of this stuff has got. I mean, we do, we do now, I mean, part of it at least seems to be driven by the fact that we do have cheap per hour based computing which makes running you know big gpus to do tensorflow stuff a lot easier um you know it, it's not going to be that long i suspect until we get our first quantum computer based per the hour i'm pretty sure microsoft will do it first um so it's kind of an, an, an odd and interesting world we're in um even though i uh, i totally agree yeah. I mean, it's it's I've been really excited to see the machine learning stuff go mainstream. You know, the biggest change from my point of view is just how 
accessible it gets from an educational point of view. It's like a really difficult field. And at the time I was trying to learn it, there, there literally wasn't an up-to-date, halfway decent textbook. Now there's a dozen of them. There's all these popular tutorials. It's just amazing um, how much of a difference having some real you know, mainstream applications in the world, how that changes everything around a field. Um, and so I'm, you know, even though yeah, maybe nothing has changed all that much, I'm actually pretty um, optimistic about what's happening now. Um, certainly, I think there's like the right the right position where companies have a lot of data, they have a lot of problems that are digital that they can attack with this stuff. Um, there's enough success stories to kind of give people hope. Um, there's enough critical mass of people who have some expertise doing it. Um, when I was at LinkedIn, we did a fair amount of this stuff fairly early on. These kind of big, you know, large scale machine learning driven uh, products, and uh, yeah, that was in part the one of the inspirations for Kafka was feeding data to all that stuff. Um, and and so I think, you know, a lot of that has kind of trickled out much more into the mainstream. This whole, I mean, because that is the thing. I mean, this whole machine learning, it, it, I mean, there is that XKCD cartoon, of course, which is machine learning, which is just you pile more and more stuff in and you keep stirring until you get the answer you want. You do have the, you do have that problem, which is you might have this data lying around, but you need to get it somewhere reliably into one place. Uh, I mean, had you been working on problems in that space before LinkedIn, or was this really just a, the confluence of events that turned up once you once you arrived there? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was pretty intentional. So, um, you know, after graduate school, I, I went to a couple different startups. I ended up at one that was doing like comparison shopping, and so we would try and you know, price and acquire traffic from Google and rank different products and do product search and score those and try and, um, you know, charge people who listed things on that based on what it was worth. So it was a lot of like pricing clicks, which a lot of the early machine applied machine learning for, you know, web companies was basically some form of pricing clicks and estimating conversion and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I I was super excited to be using uh, some of the skill set I'd built that I thought you know, th- this is kind of a boring uh, application in the world. Like maybe my job is interesting, but the output of what we're building is uh, boring. And so I thought, well, you know, the, the big thing is going to be uh, these social networks. They have, you know, instead of just having data, they have data about the world. Um, they're building whole products on top of that data, like the applications for, um, you know, people who work with data are just going to be vastly better in that domain. Um, and that was uh, partially true. So, so then I was I was interested in going to a social network to work, and I thought, well, you know, I looked at MySpace, but it was down in LA, and I didn't want to move. And um, I looked at Facebook, but I was like, that's not going to go anywhere. Um, you know, they're going to lose to MySpace. And so I looked at LinkedIn. I thought, okay, maybe that will work. Uh, maybe they'll have some way of making money because none of the social networks were making any money. So that was my rationale. I don't know if it was uh, totally correct, but that was how I ended up at LinkedIn. Was like data plus you know, a business model that uh, seems to be working. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's a, on, the, on the Facebook, I suppose, at the time, it was more obvious as well how LinkedIn would make money, you know, in terms of it's a professional business network, you know, as a platform for recruitment, as a platform for finding jobs, it seems like a quite quite an obvious fit. Uh, and of course, you do generate this vast quantity of information about how people are related, the you know, your interactions with the site, uh, understanding, I guess, how people work with the system. I mean, was it, that sort of analytical data initially that was driving this sort of fire hose of information is that where the main source of your your workload was from was just to understand how people use the site yeah i mean in in actuality at linkedin so i went there to work on these data driven products i found that um they were like 
you know, five layers of the stack missing to actually be able to do that. Um, and that, that was how I ended up working on infrastructure software. So, you know, I came, you know, thinking we were going to build a product around, uh, you know, news recommendations. And, you know, they did iterate on that product, but they didn't get a working version of it until very recently where there was kind of news and postings you could have. So maybe in the last few years. So, so the amount of missing layers in the stack were large. And so, you know, I ended up uh, managing a team that ran um, product development in this kind of data and analytics space and a team that did uh, infrastructure development supporting that. And over time, I found myself focused much more on the infrastructure space. I built a key value store that um, a lot of the live part of LinkedIn is still served off of. Um, I did the kind of rollout and adoption of Hadoop and all the big data stuff kind of in the back end for big batch processing. Uh, we built a bunch of kind of recommendation algorithms and stuff on top of that. And then Kafka basically came out of that. We were, um, you know, we thought it was weird that in our portfolio, we had a distributed set of distributed systems that would do quick lookups. We had a set of distributed systems that would do these 24 hour batch jobs. And then we just really had nothing in between. And the, the whole concept of a, you know, 24 hour daily batch cycle just seemed you know, a very odd fit for a digital business where, you know, it's not even clear when the day should start and stop. Literally no data source that you have is actually batch oriented. You know, they're all continuously generated. Um, and then the, you know, the value of being able to update and do things, you know, within a customer experience rather than waiting um, uh, for a long time is, is much, much higher. And so, um, so we were we were interested in taking a lot of the kind of analytical capabilities and the big distributed platform from the big data space and trying to apply it and you know in a much more you know real time production oriented uh, area get rid of all the old uh, messaging systems we had be able to build more you know applications that would feed off of this and do things with it and then also just connect all the different systems we had and so that was that was kind of the mindset that we. Um, you know, started with, we, we did a bunch of evaluation of open source messaging systems. We realized, look, it's going to be very hard to build, you know, something on top of these. They're not really built as a just, you know, modern distributed platform and you can't really layer that on top as a feature. So, so if we're going to do this, we're going to have to kind of do it from scratch. And, and that was the genesis of Kafka. So, I mean, I mean, that was obviously quite a big journey for yourself going from being um, like a, a person working on sort of data and, and analytics and and then going into building production critical distributed systems i can imagine there must have been a huge amount of of, of new information and new ways of thinking you would have to bring into your bring into your arsenal i suppose on that journey because building a distributed system like kafka or, or even the, the especially the key value stuff you mentioned before that's not a trivial undertaking uh, no, absolutely not. So, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was definitely a harsh learning curve of what's required to make these types of systems, um, you know, actually perform as infrastructure. You know, for infrastructure, people basically want it to always work. They never want to have problems. You know, if you have a, you know, a slightly buggy data storage system is basically worse than nothing, right? <laughs> right? Like you can put, you know, getting to 99% done is just useless. You, you know, really is about making these things something that people can depend on and build on. And yeah, that's very, very different um, from the world of machine learning, which is just kind of inherently um, approximate and, and, you know, best effort. What was interesting was, you know, we had a very similar challenge with productionizing a lot of these machine learning processes where you're taking, you know, both you're kind of taking something that's a little bit researchy and you're trying to make it real in the world and both had a similar flavor um, 
even though uh, the types of people that you have involved in the projects are really different. Uh, and, and so you you sort of found yourself with this problem. You needed, as you say, that 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 to starting to fill the space between the immediate and you know and the batch. Um, you looked around at some of the existing products out there on the market. I mean, what were the characteristics that you were looking for that you weren't finding out there? I mean, was it was it just a scale uh, aspect, or was it was it something else? Yeah. So what what LinkedIn had at the time was they had kind of this custom layer that would do change capture for databases, you know, but it was, um, you know, it was very much in memory and it had no ability to kind of scale out. We, we used ActiveMQ um, for kind of a message queue. Um, again, it had a very weak story of how you could like run it as a service and scale the applications transparently on it. You know, Kind of from my point of view, I just felt like it wasn't built like a modern distributed data system where you can think of it, you know, instead of thinking of a message broker, which is like one machine, you know, you would think about having this kind of, you know, pool of resources. You would think about the cluster as being the single thing that you're connected to, that you write to, that you interact with. And that just has a ton of advantages in terms of how you operate it, how you build applications. And then especially when you think about your data architecture, it has a huge advantage that, um, you know, if you're thinking about where is this data, well, it's in the cluster, right? <laughs> and so instead of, you know, sharding that manually over a bunch of individual machines, ha having some kind of unified place where we could say, okay, here's all the streams of what's happening in LinkedIn, um, that that would have a lot of uh, benefits. And then we were looking at kind of the architecture of these queues. And we were also, you know, because we'd come out of building a distributed database, we were really interested in these commit logs and storage around a log. You know, people would probably mostly um, come into looking at that from the point of view of event sourcing. Now, if you're kind of more in the application development space, but in the infrastructure space, the core of a lot of these distributed systems is this type of ordered commit log, which is very similar to the concepts in event sourcing. But, you know, more aimed at how do you build a database or how do you build a big search cluster or how do you build a you know distributed system and so we felt like hey we could you know we could have a pretty different take on this area you know in a couple different ways one we could build something that was you know actually storing these events and and that would have a lot of benefits we would be able to connect up offline systems we'd be able to rely on that storage layer um, for bootstrapping other systems off of it um, second, we thought we could build something that was like a modern distributed system and that could scale out and operate independently and that would have built-in fault tolerance. And then third, we thought that this area of stream processing was really uh, promising. So at that time, you know, it mostly existed just in kind of computer science papers. There'd been a couple of failed startups around the area. There was, you know, some products that were adopted in uh, kind of niche areas of financial services, but it wasn't really a mainstream thing. But we thought, hey, you know, messaging systems, in a sense, it's a very low level type of infrastructure. It says, here's a message, here's a message. It doesn't really give you any kind of higher level primitive for working with those messages. And so if you could instead have something more like a database where you say, hey, I have this stream of messages. I want to join it on to this table to enrich that data stream. I want to process it or aggregate it in this way. That type of higher level capability that could make people much more productive in this real time domain rather than having people effectively build all that stuff themselves in their application. It is interesting to me. I mean, one of the things that makes Kafka stand out so differently has been this concept of that permanence, that the idea that, you know, it's it, it, Traditionally, you'd think of a message broker as like I get a message from A to B. Once it's gone to B, it's got to B, and that's it. It's done. Um, but almost from the very beginning, coming at it from a point of view of a database, almost thinking about these commit logs. You know, this the concept of an order commit log is a really key 
aspects of how databases have been built for decades, really, when you get, you know, been thinking about how they replicate and scale. So, because I was always intrigued as to whether or not this idea of effectively event permanence was, was a, an idea right from the beginning. And it sounds like it was this idea that, you know, you just leave things in the, in the queue and you can always get back to those things that you want to later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I guess we were inspired by databases which uh, rely very heavily on those that log as kind of the single source of truth for all the indexes and materialized views and whatever is updated off of that. And so we thought, well, maybe one metaphor for this, which is you know a little bit nerdy, but you can kind of think of, you have this big complicated data center with lots of applications and systems. And when something happens in your business, you're trying to propagate that event to all these different things. And so one view of that problem is you could think of this as being like one big database and you could think of all these applications that are reacting to this as some kind of view that's materialized off of this or maybe some kind of index like a search cluster that's updated by it. And so in that respect, it's very much like a distributed database where you kind of commit the event that happened to this log. And then you know that whatever the time frame or speed or uptime of all these different systems that need to react, they will eventually react. And they'll see that sequence of events in the same order, you know, across all of them. And that that would be kind of a powerful primitive to think about how everything, you know, all these different things actually plug together and what, you know, what is our architecture? How does data flow through all these systems? That would be kind of a powerful unifying idea for them. And the, the fact that those, the, the things in the queue is in Kafka itself don't vanish afterwards means that even if you've reacted to an event, but then you, your, your data gets corrupted, you want to change that way you process those events. You don't have to get them rebroadcast like you might with a normal traditional broker. You can just effectively, you know, re-ingest the same events that you ingested days, weeks or months ago. Yeah, that was that was really important for us early on because we were trying to replace a lot of ETL processes. And one of the advantages of ETL processes is they're repeatable. So if something goes wrong, you can like restart the data load for the day. And if you think about it, that actually makes a lot of sense. It, it can't be the case for any kind of um, you know data pipeline that has to get exactly the right answer that if you have some glitch somewhere and something times out, that the whole thing kind of collapses on itself. You have to have this type of reliability and the implication of that is you have to store the data. And it, it's actually very inconvenient for the system builder because storing data is really hard. Um, you know, storage systems are notoriously hard. You have to do replication, you have to do fault tolerance, you have to do all this hard stuff that people who make message brokers have tried to avoid. But I, I think it actually works out pretty well. It works out pretty well in a couple ways uh, compared to traditional messaging systems. You know, first, the performance of the system is always the same, whether you have a lot of data in it or not a lot. And, you know, this was one of the huge problems we had with message brokers was they worked great, but then when the consumers would fall behind, the messages would like queue up uh, and that would happen really quickly. And then the whole thing would kind of like run out of space or get much slower because it was using disks in a totally different way and kind of keel over. And so it was like the queues were good unless you needed a queue and then it would all collapse. And that was like not, not very useful. I mean, obviously if you have a lower throughput problem, it's fine. Uh, but if you have a lower throughput problem, then there's like lots of things that'll work. Um, and the second reason uh, that, that it ended up um, helping a lot is it just turns out that architecturally being able to rely on this is really useful. So like for, you know, change data capture, there's many things that want to fall back on these changes from databases. But if you're actually literally trying to slurp up all the changes from a database and you have many things doing that, um, that can actually impact the performance of the database. So having something you can depend on there is, is really useful. So 
uh, once we started down that path, we realized that a lot of the use cases really kind of demand that stuff. Stream processing is the same way where the ability to kind of change the logic in your application and then have it go back and recompute its results is really useful. In fact, that's kind of like how batch processing works, right? It was really interesting when I was work was looking through um, the, the streams stuff and how streams is built in. The streaming stuff is now built into Kafka and things. And it that, that whole thing you touched on where you're, you're sort of, you know, you're you're changing the ability to query in the client, but you still need to be able to query on that data. It's it's a separation of concerns. In a database, we we typically have both concerns in the database itself. We have the storage of data and the querying of that data. It's in one location, so you have contention. You know, if I run an expensive query in a database, I'm going to impact that for other people. But here, that with streaming, the querying is on the client side. The data storage. And is somewhere else, and so you you can you can balance your workloads more easily, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's exactly right. So for people who don't know, um, you know what Kafka's kind of domain is storing these streams of data and handing them out to people who want them, and then we try and do that as well as we can at large scale. You know, in a data center full of many consumers that are all fighting over stuff, so you can throttle these things and you know make them all play nicely together in an administrative way. Um, what we don't do that a database does is we don't allow you to run you know, complicated lookups and queries against the data in Kafka, and that's kind of by design. So instead, we're saying, look, you know, take this feed, you can uh, process it in your application and you can put it in a database, or, um, and this is a, you know, this is a slightly more out there idea, but but turns out to be really powerful. Um, the stream processing client, which is you know, really just a library that works with the Kafka protocol, actually allows you to directly materialize the data that's in Kafka um, in an embedded uh, storage engine called RocksDB, and it will give you, you know, fault tolerance and uh, the ability to partition out there. Um, and so, you know, that actually gives you the ability to store data with your application that's derived off this log of changes. And it turns out that has a bunch of advantages. Um, you know, first of all, obviously, you have faster access to the data because it's stored locally. Um, second of all, that that data really lives with your application, so you can actually change your application and change the storage and basically you know create a new instance of your app that's derived off that same set of changes and then phase out the old one and so uh, there's a there's a bunch of really powerful things about that pattern and it, it gives you these kind of strong semantics when you're processing these changes because the storage and the processing all works together and it, you know all that is done transactionally so one of the big uh, pushes in Kafka has been really making that type of stream processing a first class citizen making sure that all the way up from you know the um, low level storage the protocol um, and now this application level client that that allows it that we we really support that type of application development end to end and our goal there is really just to make you know take stream processing from maybe where it was um, you know, around uh, 2000, 2001, whatever, where it was this kind of very niche, uh, you know, academic concern. Um, and, and we believe it could actually be a very mainstream form of application development. Like we, we think that, you know, a lot of what companies do is reacting to some event that happened in the organization somewhere. That a lot of the services you build, a lot of the systems that are build, built, a lot of the core business logic basically does that. And so you could think if you think about like a retail store, the idea that, you know, a sale takes place somewhere and that that needs to then flow and impact a bunch of systems that maybe maintain inventory that, you know, reorder things that look at pricing that move things between warehouses, you know, the whole back end of a retail operation. In some sense, it's reacting to sales. That's kind of the driving event. 
And if you think about a lot of businesses have that type of backend, many of them build, you know, in a purely batch oriented fashion, but that is kind of limiting in that it kind of makes you inherently a bit slow. Uh, and it's also, you know, a little bit unnatural, like uh, for any kind of global business, e-commerce, anything that's on 24 hours a day, it's just not even clear when the day is over. Um, so there's this idea of real time. There's also this idea of permanence. Um, the the using either Kafka streams or some other streaming technology using Kafka as a source, because I've got that permanence, I can project effectively from those events, maybe into a local state that can then be queried. Uh, and that that and you you mentioned earlier on actually these ideas of event sourcing that have have sort of become popular in the last few years. You can use effectively Kafka out of the box almost to do an event sourcing style of 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 data retrieval and, and data manipulation because I can just use the K stream the, the, the streaming stuff from the client libraries to project my my sort of current view of my state based on that event. Uh, those are the events that are flowing in. Yeah, that's exactly right. That that streams API is effectively um, you know strongly encouraging an event sourcing style of development. But you know I think you would uh, adopt it as much for the advantages that that API has in terms of working with events as you would for the event sourcing, which is almost an implementation detail of how it works. Um, I think there are a lot of advantages of that in that you can see exactly the you know chain of events that led to the current state, which is a you know in certain domains is a huge advantage. But even if you just don't really care how it works under the covers, I think it has advantages in just being you know much more convenient as a method for working with event data than low-level message brokers, which you know kind of give you the event and then walk away and leave you to handle the rest of the problem. Yeah, you end up having to do a lot of that logic yourself. Um, I- one of the things you touched on a number of times is talking about scale. You know, the fact that this was built to handle scale. And I know that some of the people that pick Kafka do so because of the, ha- the ability it does to handle scale. And as you put it, sort of a repair, fairly consistent performance at different throughput levels. Um, but I, 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 could you share some examples of what scale means for Kafka? I mean, have you got some examples in terms of like how much data LinkedIn handle with Kafka or, or, or some other client. Because the reason I, I'm asking that is because I think a lot of people say big data, but they don't really have big data, right? They've got, you know, a few gigs here and there. I'm, so I'm interested in, in sort of... I actually strongly agree with that. I mean, the the last part of that, that like many people don't have applications that demand kind of big data. Um, and so I would, uh, I would encourage people to actually look at Kafka... Um, a little bit differently. So, you know, there's two things it provides that are maybe missing from some off-the-shelf uh, technology. So, first of all, it, you know, it does allow you to kind of scale out. And so, one advantage of that is, yeah, if you have an application which is really big, um, then you might want to scale out for that one application, right? Um, and there's there's definitely many people running Kafka globally distributed with over a trillion events per day that go through it. Um, especially a lot of the Silicon Valley tech companies that are kind of all in and have all their data flowing through this, the Netflixes and LinkedIn's and Microsoft and and so on. Um, but uh, but but I, I actually think there's another path to get to the same place. Again, remember that one of the goals for this types of uh, event streams is actually to connect things, to connect different services, right? And so even if you know an individual application isn't so large that you couldn't you know handle its use case on one machine, maybe 
Um, that the process of handling each application on its own kind of message broker, it just leads to kind of a mess. Um, you know, we w one of our customers, um, they were describing their environment. They they use uh, IBM MQ series. They have two thousand individual brokers, which are all kind of hand tunes, and different applications published to different ones. And then of course the load is a little different, so they they kind of take care of each one individually and tune it individually and upgrade it individually. Just the management burden of that is huge for them. And then the architectural complexity, it's like if you want to tap into some core stream of what the business does, it's very hard. And because this has been done in this kind of manually sharded way, there's a lot of duplication because people can't figure out what's there or, you know, that broker's already overloaded. So now we're kind of publishing some subset of it over here. And so, I, you know, I think the, the second goal of this um, uh, scalability is, is not so much scaling one big application, but going from one application to you know a whole company worth of applications that can communicate around the central uh, streaming platform that can house all of them and that can actually work with them. And that, that's actually much harder. It's actually much easier to scale for one application. You kind of just do more of the same thing. The ability to protect yourself and work with lots of diverse usage patterns is actually a much harder problem. Uh, for a distributed system to handle. And, you know, you know, I think one of the things we're very proud about with Kafka is that there's a large number of companies doing that at very large scale in terms of the number of engineers working against it, the number of applications plugged into it, you know, and so on. Um, and, and in my, you know, in my opinion, at least as a system builder, that's actually a much harder problem to solve and a much more valuable problem to solve and actually bringing together all the streams of data that are what, you know, a business does. You know, kind of in our view, it should be that in the end state in these companies that adopt as they progress, kind of in that end state, you could go into the Kafka cluster and see a stream representing all the high level events that comprise their business. And, you, you know, from the very low level to the very high level things that are occurring, and you should be able to tap into those and build against them. And that that kind of vision, I think the power of it only comes if you can do it across many applications. And so that's the second advantage. I, and I think that that sort of segues nicely into a, a topic that's obviously quite near and dear to my heart, and that's and that's yeah in the area of microservices. I mean, obviously at one level, you know, I can just you know see uh, Kafka as a as a drop-in replacement for a traditional message broker, albeit with these different characteristics. So where I might use a message broker between two services, I can obviously use Kafka. Um, but but there do seem to be some differences in terms of the benefits I get. I mean, one of the challenges that I often see with organizations that are adopting microservices is, is this aspect of shared data that and there are challenges around you know having a giant shared database because of the, the coupling problem to an extent what I'm kind of interested in is is what is it that's different about Kafka and how you know, if I'm storing all my data in Kafka how is that not the same as a shared database I guess what are, what are the key things that are going to make that a better experience than just sticking everything in Oracle rack uh, and then just saying here here's everything you need that's right. That's a great question. Um, so, I mean, first I would say, like, how does Kafka even fit into the microservices world? You know, in my you, you kind of have two approaches to building services. You have, um, you know, kind of a synchronous request response. And I, I think that that's um, very powerful and useful if you're building some kind of interactive UI. So, you know, applications that are very UI centric tend to have a much heavier request response footprint. And then you also have app applications which are kind of asynchronous and react to what's happening elsewhere. And those are going to be the ones that go for some kind of message queue or something that can store the data while, you know, and wait for it to be processed or reacted to. And so obviously that latter, you know, whatever that is, half, 
you know, some percentage of your apps, that's where Kafka would be useful and that's where other messaging systems I think fit in. Um, so yeah, the advantages that, that Kafka has compared to other systems for, um, you know, services, first of all, it's just the scalability, right? Like if you, if you tell me, hey, look, I wanna take, uh, have all my teams go off and build applications and, you know, plug together onto a central message queue, then the question I have for you is, well, okay, that central hub, you'd better be able to scale that and maintain that apart from all these teams, right? You can't bring it down for maintenance and say, hey guys, like all service communication is gonna be down between you know, eight and 10 p.m. Uh, so you have to have a way that this stays up all the time and that you can kind of scale this dynamically as these different parts of the business move. And if you don't have that, I think you're gonna miss kind of the whole reason you wanted microservices in the first place, which is you wanted these teams to move agilely and independently. Um, the second thing that I think is an advantage, and this gets maybe a little bit into the weeds, but um, you know, Kafka's model for events is much closer, I think, to the true meaning of an event than a lot of what the kind of prior generation of message queues provide. So in Kafka, an event occurs, and then that is you know, reliably broadcast out to whoever needs it, uh, regardless of whether they happen to be connected at the particular time, um, regardless of anything else it's done in order and so in distributed systems there's these different kind of models of communication and, and kafka will give kind of reliable broadcast or atomic broadcast depending on some details which is kind of the strongest type of communication and most directly um, mirrors in my mind what people mean by event data how does an event propagate in my organization and i i do think that that's the right way of thinking about this type of asynchronous service you know an event occurs in the business i need to be able to be sure that once i've recorded that event it will eventually take place in all the systems that need to react to it even though i can't have the source system wait around for all of those to occur even though the source system doesn't even know uh, everything that has to occur. And so, so there's a set of advantages there um, you know, that are really important just in mirroring the true meaning of events and building around them that I, I think makes it uh, you know, actually better even if you're just building a small number uh, you know, of applications just because the, the model it's providing you is actually um, a better fit for, for the needs of that type of, of system. Then you brought up almost a separate point, which is um, you know, we, we usually think about APIs for interacting with data. So if I have a service and maybe I'm storing customer data uh, and you need customer data in a certain way, I'll add an API for you that you can call to do some lookup. And that makes sense, I think, as long as those APIs can be general purpose. But you'll often find that the, 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 the other teams need data in a way that's very, very, very custom to their use case. And so an example of this is, you know, I need to do, uh, based on you know customer accounts, I need to do some kind of very deep analysis uh, to predict churn, or I need to do something that's very involved in the data. And trying to chunk off a piece of that and push it into your service creates this very poor boundary where every time I need to change what I do, I have to kind of go to you and uh, fiddle around with the API because we've cut it in the wrong place. And you'll, you'll see this over and over again if you, if you build services in your organization where you're like, okay, you know, like every time you upgrade your application, I'm gonna have to change my API to you because it's not like you're just saying, oh, give me this customer's data or give me these customer's data. You have these very complex requirements for how you index it, how you look it up and so on. 
And, and so, you know, this is why you see people always just trying to share the database so they can just do the queries that they actually need. Um, that's where that pressure comes from. The problem with that is because you can change the data in any way, once you open up access to your database, you kind of lose a lot of your ability to reason about that data. And now you have two public interfaces, right? Your service and your database itself. And you have to evolve them both together, which is very difficult. Um, so the advantage of sharing through Kafka is it, it has a very principled way of propagating change, right? So the application would kind of, you know, the application that owns the data would own the rights. And then the anybody who wants to tap into that stream of data, you know, is allowed to tap into that stream of rights and take them and do whatever they want. So if you want to keep a search index, which is done in some particular way, and you want to do very complicated sorting and ranking based on your needs, you can replicate the stream of account data, put it into your own index, index it in your own way. And I'm actually not tied to you because I know that if I need to make changes, I can you know, send out those updates and you have a way of keeping them in sync. And without that type of principled mechanism, then of course you get one of two things. Either you know, I'm talking to your database or I'm trying to get you to implement these complicated APIs that are really just like half of my application that I need to always iterate on. Or I just like ETL over a whole copy of the data into my database. But then I have the problem of like, well, how do I keep that up to date? And, you know, what if my system isn't the same as your system? Like, how do I do that replication from Oracle to Elasticsearch or whatever the case may be? Um, and so Kafka, I think, solves a lot of these problems where an application can say, look, you know, I have two ways of connecting. One is I have request response APIs. You can come do a quick lookup. The other is I will publish out a series of events in a structured form with a, you know, um, a, a kind of schema or format that I commit to and evolve in a certain way. And you can subscribe to that set of data changes in any way you want. And the reality is every application has one of these um, things that feed off of its data in, in practice, right? You almost always have a data warehouse or something which wants that stream of changes. All that this is really doing is kind of blessing that pattern and saying, look, we need to do this. We always end up doing it. Let's do it in a principled, structured way so that the team that uh, owns that data can still iterate uh, in an agile fashion and, and still update data, but, but share uh, without um, having to kind of open up their database to the entire world. Cool, thank you. I, I think that that is, that is kind of one of the big things for me was was it, it the model that's being uh, presented almost because of what you built Kafka to do in the microservice space it's it's giving us that it's giving us the good side of having all your data in one place in terms of a database but without as many of the coupling challenges and so it's you know now that I'm thinking it's a potential solution in my head now in the past it was like yeah that's tough and now it's like well you could think of this whole Kafka thing instead because then effectively your 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 source of truth is these events which are going to be stored safely and permanently uh, those that if you need the information it's just right there you just go and you know you just go and subscribe and the, and the information will start flowing um, but without all that downside of of you know people all integrating and coupling on this giant huge public API which is what the shared databases end up becoming so I'm sort of so um, I probably mentioned for those listening uh, Ben Stopford has done a really nice series of articles almost walking through everything that Jay said uh, with lots of diagrams um, sort of 
talking about yeah in much more is much more detail much better yeah so i'll put links into those but it, it really does summarize a lot of the ideas that jay's were talk jay was talking about talking about this idea of of how you share data talking about how the streaming stuff works um, and so I'll, I'll make sure there's a reference to that in the uh, podcast uh, show notes um one other thing jay just before i think we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up shortly but i just want to ask you kind of what where do you see kafka going i mean what's what's next what what's the big focus for you for for you and the rest of the team there at the moment um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a bunch of things going on. Um, you know, we're we we put together kind of a enterprise distribution of Kafka. Um, we have an open source distribution of Kafka. Th those go under the name Confluent Platform. Um, we also have a hosted version of this, so we're running like Kafka as a service. So for people who are in the public cloud and like don't want to take on the operation of yet another data system, um, you you can basically outsource that to people who are really good at it. Um, so that's a big area of development. We're, uh, we're really actively um, developing and adding capabilities to um, you know, stream processing with Kafka. So that streams API in Kafka, and then we just released a SQL layer, which does stream processing on top of these streams of data that is in Kafka. And our, you know, I guess our mission there is to try and make this area of stream processing really easy, like uh, really simple. We want it to be kind of a mainstream way of developing applications. It, you know, we want people to be able to think about their business in terms of events and build app, you know, the easiest path to working with events should be, you know, stream processing of event streams. And, um, you know, I, I think we're making progress towards that, but certainly the starting point was it was not easy. You would have Kafka, but there would be all these different processing layers and things, and how do you glue them all together? And, you know, it was really kind of a big undertaking that only made sense for these really critical real-time applications. We want to make it something that's available, you know, for anything. The buying cost should be, you know, really low. And so that that's kind of what motivates us, what we're trying to do. So, we, you know, we think you should be able to say, hey, look, I, I want to... Um, I'm, maybe I'm doing like a customer 360 project where I want to glue together bits of data about my customers that are spread over a bunch of databases. You should be able to write simple SQL queries that take these streams of data in Kafka, knit them together and come up with kind of a unified customer profile and output a stream of those that's you know actually materialized in real time. You should be able to serve queries directly against that or replicate it into databases. That's kind of you know where we see this whole area going. There's a ton of active development there. so. You know, everything in the stream processing space is relatively new. Um, uh, there's a bunch of other systems that also do stream processing, so we work on integration with all of those. But you know, that, that's kind of our our big areas of focus. And if people are interested in playing around with Kafka, giving it a go, I mean, what's the for you know developer listening to this uh, podcast? What's the best way forward for them? Is it to go try out one of the hosted solutions, or just download it, run it on their laptop, or what would your suggestion be for getting started? Yeah, either of those are great paths. I, you know, I found that um, the uh, people who are well into their career, they kind of balk at this idea of, you know, doing local development against a, a hosted thing. And so they want to download something. And, you know, younger, younger people I talk to, they're like, you know, I download it and run it on my machine. Like what? <laughs> so their, their way of doing it is just, you know, fire up a service and go to it. So, you know, I, I, either is totally reasonable. Uh, you know, we offer we offer both paths. Um, the, the, you know, it is Kafka is actually pretty easy to just download and get started. There's quick starts. If you want to, you know, experiment with this stream processing area, either via the you know SQL command line or via the uh, Java API, we have really good quick starts that you can go and kind of um, just practice. I, I think it's actually kind of an interesting mind expanding thing to start to think about. 
you know, reacting to streams of events, processing streams of events. I, I think it's a fun thing uh, to try and apply that to the domain of the business you work in and see, okay, how, what problems does this fit for? What does it not fit for? And kind of add it to your portfolio of tools that, that you have for, for, you know, building real applications. Awesome. Jay, thank you so much indeed for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can get more details, links and notes over at magpietalkshow.com. Please do leave a comment over at iTunes. It really does help other people find the show. And thanks to those of you who have done so so far. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe at iTunes directly or go to magpietalkshow.com and that way you'll never miss an episode. And until next time, have a great week. Thank you.